Steve is too kind. And I feel like every time you come up, the accolades just get bigger, and I feel like i got to live up to a bigger hype. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, my name is Ryan uh, Leeds. Uh, we, my wife and I, Lauren, have been at the church for a little over two years now. Um, we have served in the worship team capacity. She's the beautiful, talented one that's usually up here. I'm just kind of here singing sometimes. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here with you today and talking about this. Uh, Jim is out hunting, and we're going to be here digging into the, the good book, doing some actually productive stuff. So yeah, um, let's jump in. So we've been in this series through the summer called A Different Kind of Faith, um, and it's, Jim's been going through this, this, this series talking about the uniqueness of Christianity amongst the world religions, and he's been using this picture of God with an open hand extending grace, forgiveness, love to us, inviting us into relationship with himself, whilst also extending to us a gift that is also meant to be shared. For the past several weeks, though, he's reframed the series and kind of did like a subset series um, called Why Would We Want To? And he's been asking these different kinds of questions um, in the hopes of softening our hearts, right? Um, in the hopes of preparing us for what God is about to do in the coming weeks with this election, this crazy, chaotic election that's coming up. Um, and so, so far, we've been through four topics. He said in the first week, Why would we want to repent? Now, repentance is this, um, it, it involves turning away from anything that is distancing us, anything that is distracting us from a wholehearted devotion to God. It is this restoration of a relationship. It's turning away from our sin, our focus on self, things, and others, and it's an about-face turn to God, right? And so why would we want to repent? Because of the intimacy because of the closeness, and because of the healing that comes with repentance, and because of the witness that a repentant heart shows to the world around us. The second week, he talked about why we would want to forgive. Um, Because we have been forgiven, we in turn forgive others. Forgiveness softens our heart, and it's what leads to reconciliation. And so Jim read out of uh, 2 Corinthians 5, last week, and that's where we read that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been forgiven, and as God's um, ambassadors and representatives to the world, we in turn forgive others. We love others just as we've been loved. We bless others just as we've been blessed. We point others to the grace, forgiveness, and love of God. In the third week, he talked about loving our enemies. Why would we want to love our enemies, because loving our enemies conveys dignity to the world. Our enemies are worth our love. They are worth our forgiveness because of what Christ did for them and because they're made in the image of Christ. It's definitely hard to love your enemies, but as you strive to love them, you slowly begin to appreciate more and more what it is that Christ did for you. Right? We were at odds with God because of our sin, and yet He loved us enough to come and to die, to pay the price for our sin, to restore that fractured relationship. 
And then last week, he talked about why would we want to engage in civil discourse? Why would we want to actually have conversations with people who oppose us or who disagree with us? Because we begin to look at people differently, right? Like, as kind of all of these different topics have been building into, we learn to look at people differently. We no longer regard people according to the flesh. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. We no longer regard people according to the flesh. We remember the grace that has been shown to them and to us, and in turn, we show that grace to others. We don't condemn. We don't judge. Instead, we engage. We engage people. We invite them into conversation. We ask questions. We learn about them. It's not our job to change people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But it is our job to engage people, right? And so continuing in this theme of why would we want to, I have been given the task of why would we want to be peacemakers? Now, I've found that it is helpful when giving a talk like this to define terms because I like to make sure that we're just all on the same page. So when I say peacemakers, I mean people who actively work, and that's the key phrase there, actively work to bring about peace and reconciliation when there is hatred and enmity. Now, that's not my definition. That's the definition of Holman Christian uh, Bible Dictionary, but I think it's an accurate, accurate description and summation of what it means to be a, a peacemaker. We're going to see this later on as we start to dig into some passages here. But looking at Scripture, peacemakers are people who share in Christ's ministry of bringing about peace and reconciliation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we talked about this, the passage that Jim had read last week. Those who are in Christ are a new creation. They're a new creation. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christians, then, are to be ambassadors for Christ who preach and who exemplify a message of reconciliation. Peacemakers are people who actively work to bring about peace and reconciliation. Peacemakers love peace, and they work for peace, but, and I have to be clear here, I want to be clear here, because I know what some of our tendencies are, and I know where some of us want to, like, go with this. That does not mean that peacemakers avoid conflict. All right? There's these kind of two, like, ways we can kind of swing on the pendulum. We can be fleers, we can be flighters, we can, we can be avoiders, or we can be over-aggressors. You've probably met both of them. But we're supposed to live in this tension in the middle, this balance, right? We, as peacemakers, try to resolve conflict. We strive to bring about wholeness, restoration, peace, shalom, in the Old Testament, was more than just this idea of absence of strife. It was this idea of wholeness, oneness. And so we're going to talk about more of that later, um, but I wanted to make sure that I was clear from the beginning that um, peacemaking does not mean the avoidance of conflict, the avoidance of strife. In fact, peacemakers, I'm going to argue, look at conflict as opportunities, opportunities to bring about peace and reconciliation, opportunities for growth and maturation, and then finally is opportunities for witness. Now, this is a very hard topic because this is like 
everything against my flesh for me. So in preparation for this talk this week, like, man, this was just like heavy. It was convicting. It was conscious pricking. But I think it's an appropriate topic for us to dive into at this point in time, given our current cultural climate, right? Why? Because there seems to be a growing toxicity in our culture. It seems that more than ever before, we've been pitted against one another, and we're just at odds with one another, right? It's unlike anything that I've ever seen in my 30 years of life. We're much more hostile and aggressive now than we were, let's say, 15 years ago. It's the cultural norm now to tear people down and to rip people to shreds. There are literally jobs out there where people get paid to rip people to shreds, to criticize them and to tear them apart. And for what? Like, for a careless sentence, a poor choice that, like, we as culture think is inappropriate, and or for a political stance or belief with where we're at right now. And there's seemingly no grace And I know that you know this to be true. I know that you know this to be true. You've seen it. Just think back on the past seven months. Shoot, think back on the past several weeks. As a side hustle, I help sort mail at the Dillon Post Office, and I have to be the one that has to put all these, like, things that you throw away right away, like these political pieces of mail. Like, and all that those mail, all those advertisements are, are people just ripping each other to shreds. Don't vote for this guy because he hates everything in the world. Don't vote for this guy because he doesn't like his mom. I don't know. Like, but like literally people are ripping people to shreds. And even for people that like we once looked up to or admired, it's like one wrong step, one wrong word, and they're out. And sadly, I think this type, like at least as far as I've, as long as I've been in the church, This type of behavior and this thinking has begun to seep its way into the church. It's begun to find its way into the church. We often don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. We often struggle to show grace. Even though we've been the recipients of unmeasurable, unfathomable grace, we struggle to extend grace on a regular basis. Why? Because everything in us is fighting against it. Our flesh fights against it. We want to be right. We want to be heard. We want to be understood. And then more often than not, we don't like to admit that there's a chance that we actually might be a part of the problem. Have you found this to be true? Like in your own life? Like have you seen this? Have you felt this? Have you been there before or is it just me? Like, we know the daily struggle that we have with our flesh. We know it. We feel the effects of our sin and, the, and how it affects our relationships with other people. And that is, in my opinion, why this series, why we would want to, it's all about that. It's about how our vertical relationship with God should affect or should influence our horizontal relationships with other people. And here's what I mean for that. by that. For those of us who are believers in this room. God has restored that vertical relationship, this rela- our relationship with him. He has made that right. He has redeemed us. He sought us. He found us. He saved us. It was all him. We have no reason to boast. 
Because of God, our vertical relationship with him has been righted and it has been restored. And yet, we still struggle with issues horizontally on a daily basis in our relationships with others. Even though we've been shown this incredible amount of love, grace, and forgiveness, we struggle daily to show that same kind of love, grace, and forgiveness to others. Am I right? Like, do you feel that same struggle, especially now? Let me offer an illustration from my own life to make this a little bit more tangible. I, number one, am a brooder. So what that means is I will enter into a conversation with someone. It might be a contentious conversation with someone. And what, that, what I'll do is I will go home and I will think about that conversation for the rest of the day. Not in a good, edifying, like, reconciliatory way. Like, more like, man, that person's a jerk in a dirtbag type of a way. <laughs> Number two, I'm an incredibly sarcastic person. <laughs> I'm originally from the Northeast, so I was born with it. Um, I have what my wife calls foot-in-mouth syndrome. Um, I will often say things in an attempt to be humorous without giving it much thought. And then combine that with, I can oftentimes be a passionate person, especially when it comes to subjects that I actually care pretty deeply about. And now sarcasm and passion, at least for me, do not go well together. They do not mix. Like, it can be funny sometimes, but more often than not, when those two mix for me, it doesn't go well. It just gets me in trouble. And so here's what that means. Rarely have I been in situations where I was getting passionate. Probably a more accurate term is argumentative, but let's just say passionate because it sounds better. And, a, and I thought about it later and was like, man, I could have gotten them here, here, and here. That would have really put them in their place. That rarely happens for me. Because, in fact, it's most often the opposite of that. Most of the time, I'm reflecting on a situation saying, why in the world did I say that? Like, what possessed me to say that to that person? <laughs> like, I'm sitting here wishing I could put the words back into my mouth. Like, you've been there before, right? Like, where you start to say something, it comes out, and you're, like, trying to grab it and put it back in, but it doesn't go back in because you've said it. It's out there. It's gone. It's done. Right? It, you said it. And so, unfortunately for me, my sarcastic tendencies have really hurt some people. Those instances where I failed to, like, filter my thoughts and my words have wounded people deeply to the soul. And it's strained relationships unnecessarily. Instead of taking the time to ask myself, all right, what I'm about to say, is it helpful? Is it edifying? Will it build this person up? I don't. I just say the first thing that comes to my mind without thinking about it and how it's going to affect that other person. And so, yes, for me, even though God has shown me an incredible, an incredible amount of love, grace, forgiveness, and now I'm tacking on patience, I struggle to extend that. And let me tell you, as a father of two, 
I've never learned more about the patience of God than when I became a dad. Like, I've been shown so much patience. He puts up with so much of my stuff, my daily rebelling against him. And yet I often fail to show that same type of love, grace, and forgiveness and patience to others. But that's the ministry we've been given, right? We've been given a ministry of reconciliation, of peacemaking. As children of God, this is the ministry that we've been called to. So let's dive into the text, start digging at this concept of peacemaking. So Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jumping into verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, I wanted to start here because when Jim said, hey, I want you to preach on why would we want to be peacemakers, this is where my mind went immediately. Because there's only, this phrase isn't common. It's only used twice in all of Scripture, this phrase of peacemakers. It's here and in James. But when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, he's not telling us here that this is how you become a children or a child of God. No, what he's saying is that children of God are peacemakers. Do you understand the difference? Children of God are peacemakers. They have the character of their heavenly father. Like, we know this to be true. As if you have kids, like, you know that your kids grow up watching you, right? They reflect your characteristics. I have a four-year-old, and I'm starting to see it. The other day, I was driving uh, down the road, and um, I'm pretty impatient in traffic. Again, it's a northeastern thing. Um, and so I've, I've definitely probably said things at times. I don't know. I don't really think about it. It's just like habit. It's second-hand nature to me now. But the other day, we like, we're coming up to a stop sign, and we're stopped for a second, and my four-year-old goes, why the heck aren't you moving? And I was like, whoa calm down. And then I was like, ah, that's me, (laughs) right? We know from scripture that our God is a God of peace. From the very beginning, he has been reconciling the world back to himself. He made peace by the blood of the cross. And even though we were rebels against him and deserved death, he sacrificed his son so that we could be cleared and restored to a right relationship with him. So our God is a peace-loving, peace-making God. And God's children image the character of their Heavenly Father. They love what he loves. They pursue what he pursues. So in short, you can know his children by their fruit whether or not they're willing to make sacrifices for peace the way that God did, the way that their heavenly Father has. And so the reason we jump from verse 9 into verse 43 is because 
the promise of sonship in verse 9 points us to the section and gives us more insight on what it means to be a child of God later. Here we read that in order to, to become or be a child of God, we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And so peacemaking, according to Jesus, seems to be these acts of love by which we try to push past any boundaries of enmity that stand between us and others. How do we do this? Number one, first, we pray for those who persecute us. We pray, and what are we like praying for? Go to the next chapter, Matthew 6, where he teaches us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? And so we pray that our enemies would come to hallow God's name. That they would come to revere his name. That they would come to acknowledge the kingdom of God. In short, we pray that they would come to know him and that they would begin growing in sanctification. It is really hard to be angry at somebody you're daily praying for. And so we pray for our enemies. Second, he gives us an example of what it means to love our enemies by greeting them, by extending ourselves to them. So in short, we don't feed grudges. We don't feed animosity. We don't ignore people and we don't avoid people. Now, this is convicting to me because I know my tendency. Like, I'll get in a conflict with somebody. We had a contentious conversation. I want to be done with it. I don't want to deal with it. And so, that, like, even within the church, the next time we come in, it's like, okay, different service or, like, other side of the hall, fake conversation, whatever I can do to ignore the conversation with the person. But that's not what God has called us to. We're, we're to greet the people that we don't like. We're to greet the people that we have trouble with. We're not to nurse grudges. We're not to nurse animosity. That's what our flesh wants to do. That's not the impulse of a child of God who's being directed and guided by the Spirit. So peacemaking, according to Jesus, it seeks to build bridges. Peacemakers don't want strife. They don't want animosity. Rather, what they want is reconciliation. They want harmony. And so peacemakers go out of their way to show courtesy to their enemies and to treat them with respect. I work for a parachurch ministry called Snowboarders and Skiers for Christ, and I can tell you that the majority of the people that I meet on the hill are not as excited to meet me as I am to meet them. It's just true. We have different values, different lifestyles. But the more that I pursue them and make a a concerted effort to reach out to them, to extend myself to them, to get to know them, to get to know their story, like that, that contentious relationship starts to fade over time. All right? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to go out of our way to treat people with respect. Easier said than done right? Like, that, that, like, that's real cool. That's really great. That's, like, pumped up. But, like, it's not always easy to do that, right? And so let's look at Romans 12. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans 12, verse 18, Paul says, if it is possible, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, and I, and I looked it up in the Greek. You know what the everyone is? Everyone. 
I love that verse because Paul doesn't sugarcoat the thing here. Like he says, if possible, which means that sometimes it's not going to be possible. Now, this is important for us to hear because what I, wanna, I, like, what I don't want us to think is that peacemaking automatically equates peace achieving. It doesn't. There will be times when peace doesn't come. All right? There will be times when you're going to own your part. You're going to make the effort to reach out. You're going to make the effort to extend yourself. You are going to be the one confessing your sin against that person, and there will be no reciprocity. Hear that again. There will be times when you reach out and you do your part, and there will be no reciprocity. You're going to do everything in your power to bring about peace and reconciliation to that relationship, to that situation, but the other party isn't going to budge. Why? Great question. Super glad you asked. Because it means that the other party is going to have to accept some part of the blame. All right? And to meet someone halfway, you have to own your part. You have to accept part of the blame. But that's hard for us. Like, we're, we're prideful creatures. We don't like accepting the blame. Especially when we're, we feel like we're not the ones at fault. Now, I don't know about you, but rarely have I met someone where they're 100% to blame. Maybe like the bulk of it. We could say 90, 95%. But rarely have I like, been in a conflict or a contentious situation where that person owed all, owned all of it. Now, there was definitely some on me. And so what do we do? We shift it. And we all do it. Like we revert to this schoolyard blame-shifting type of thing. My four-year-old does it literally all the time. I'll come into a room, find my one-year-old on the floor crying. Bella, what'd you do? Why is your sister crying? Why'd you push her? Great question, Dad. Glad you asked. Well, she messed up my drawing. And so she had to get pushed. In her mind, she did literally nothing wrong. Her sister was in the wrong for messing up her drawing. 100% of the blame. The push was just that natural response, right? And so she'll, and, and what, this gets me, she'll say it in a way that questions my questioning her. She'll be like, Dad, she messed up my drawing. Like, so she got pushed. What did you think was going to happen? Like, not my fault, her fault. So we do everything in our power to shift the blame off of ourselves and onto the other party. Why? Because we don't feel like we're in the wrong. We're not to blame. The other person's to blame. But when you start asking questions, you realize really quickly that there's a common perception out there that if a, if a person owns the majority of the blame, then they're the one who has to own all of the blame. Right? So the other person's response, let's say 5%, the other person owns 95% of the blame, but your response is 5%, was just the reaction. It was just the natural response. Like, and so it turns into the situation, like my four-year-old daughter. I'm not to blame, Dad. My push was just a response to her destroying my drawing. My sin 
was just a response to her sin, her bigger sin, Dad. So it's fine. Like, how often do we do this? Where we justify our sinful response because the other person, in our opinion, has the bigger sin. I was listening to a talk by Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Texas. He was talking about this idea of peacemaking. And he points out that there's this perception out there that if the other person is mostly to blame, then they don't need to own their sin. We don't need, they don't need to own their part. But here's the thing. Sin is still sin. 5%, 95%, doesn't matter. Sin is still sin. It's not like God is looking at you and going, yep, completely understood why you did that, justified. No, that's ridiculous. Like, no, by responding in sin, we're not only sinning against that other person, we're sinning against God. We're sinning against God and destroying that other relationship. That's not a biblical response. That's not representing the ministry of Christ um, to the people and world around us, whether that's in the church or outside the church. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 12. In the context right before the verse I read to you, he says, don't repay evil for evil. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So following in the footsteps of what Jesus did in Matthew 5, Paul prohibits believers from seeking vengeance. Instead, like Jesus, Paul encourages believers to bless those who wrong them. To seek peace with everyone and to respond to evil with good. And we see that principle literally littered throughout Scripture. I can't go through all the examples now, but like in Numbers 5, right? We read of one who has wronged another person and what they're told to do is that they are told to go and confess it. So they go and they restore that vertical relationship with God and then they're to go and reconcile with their brother and or sister and they're to make a full restitution and add to a fifth of it. Add to a fifth of it. Or add a fifth to it. It's going above and beyond. It's not just like restoring the relationship. It's going above and beyond to restore the relationship. To honor the person. To treat them with respect. To extend yourself to them the way that God has extended himself to you. And then in the New Testament, we read of Jesus' ministry of reconciliation. He came while we were yet sinners. He initiated that relationship. He extended grace and forgiveness. And then he calls his followers, his disciples, to do the same. To follow suit. Peacemakers then work actively for peace. They don't respond to evil with evil. They forgive and they pray that the Spirit would work in the life of another to bring about repentance and faith. So I want to look at one more passage before we close that we're going to really dig into because I know that this is hard. We can't ignore the fact that peacemaking is difficult. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue it. It's a holy and right pursuit. So Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, real quick, before I dig into this too much, that word strive at the beginning is a very forceful word that Paul's using. It's like when it talks about like persecution or strife, he means like, no, fight. Fight for this. Fight for peace with everyone. Fight for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this is a very, we can see the theme kind of building. The author of Hebrews notes that we're to strive, we're to fight for peace. We're to continuously and diligently pursue it with everyone. Christians and non-Christians. Now what's important about this passage is that peacemaking is connected to holiness. Holiness is the main subject of this, of this verse. Peacemaking, is, or striving for peace, that's the subset of this verse. It's what it means to be a holy person, to be a child of God. In other words, what the author is saying here is that there is a holiness without which you will not see God, and he makes peacemaking a part of it, which shows you just how important peacemaking is. Peacemaking, according to the author of Hebrews, is not optional. It's part of what it means to be holy, set apart, consecrated for this task of making his name known. It's part of what it means to be a child of God. Now, as I was preparing this message, I was really pricked in my conscience. And as I was studying all these questions, started to flood into my head about what about me? Am I diligently pursuing peace? Am I making concerted efforts to bring about peace and reconciliation even when it's hard to do it? Like, I know me. I'm prideful and I'm stubborn and I'm a brooder. It's easier to avoid going and reconciling and making right that relationship. It's easier to connect with people that I know or that have similar values or worldview. It's easier. But God calls us to something more, and there's life in that. And so if I'm being honest, peacemaking does not come natural to me. Like, it's not like Jim was like, you're a peacemaker, go give this talk. <laughs> like, that didn't happen. It's not natural to me. And, and like, I don't, I wouldn't say that I enjoy conflict. Like, I don't enjoy it, but I don't avoid it. As I said earlier, like, I can sometimes be very rash in my speech. I can say hurtful things in an attempt to be humorous or really just to prove my point. But according to this passage, that's not the type of behavior that characterizes a child of God. Children of God are not unforgiving, they're not retaliatory, they're not vengeful, and they're not vindictive. Rather, like their heavenly father, they initiate by repenting of their wrong and offering forgiveness to the party who wronged them. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. A right way to go is to confess to God and then to confess to your brother and acknowledge the blame and be direct about it. Don't put any but, if, ands, or you's on the end of it, right? Like, we come to our, brother, like our brothers in the faith and say, Trevor, I am so sorry. I, there was just something in my flesh, and I gossiped about you, and that was not honoring to you. That did not build you up, and I'm sorry for doing that. 
We don't go and say, hey, Trevor, I gossiped about you because of your jerkiness and dirtbaggery. Like, that's not an apology. That's not, that's not honest repentance, right? And so we go and we repent and we, and we forgive and then we offer forgiveness in return. Children of God make concerted efforts to move toward this idea of wholeness. Not away from it. We're, if we are content to live with strife, to live with animosity, then there's a bigger heart issue going on. And again, like I understand that this is hard. The author of Hebrews understands that this is hard. He puts this, like he doesn't pretend it's easy. In fact, he puts this idea of pursuing peace, fighting for peace, striving for peace in a list of very hard things to do. He says, pursuing peace is hard, like strengthening weak knees when you're exhausted and you don't feel like you can move another step. Pursuing peace is hard, like trying to walk on an injured leg and it just doesn't want to move. Pursuing peace is hard, like living a life of holiness that evidences your faith when everything inside of you is trying to derail you from pursu- and trying to get you to pursue unholy passions. Pursuing peace is hard, like not allowing the deceitfulness of sin to creep in and to harden your heart. It is hard, but it is a worthy pursuit. We pursue peace, we strive, we fight for peace with Christians and non-Christians because it's a worthy fight. Like Paul said to Timothy, we fight the good fight of faith and we do everything that we can to stand firm. And so you can be sure, I promise you, especially right now, in our cultural moment, you will be tested. Your attempts to bring about peace and and reconciliation will be attacked. And there's going to be days when you want to give up. You'll want to say, this is too hard. My attempts to make peace aren't working. People don't appreciate what I'm trying to do. The forgiveness I offer to others is not reciprocated. But you continue to fight. And you continue to fight because of the grace and the forgiveness that was offered to you in Jesus. Because of Jesus, we continue to initiate and we continue to strive for reconciliation. So moving now toward our conclusion, how? How can a life of peacemaking actually be sustained? He means by that is that the grace of God enables us to keep breathing. It enables us to keep thinking. It enables us to keep loving God until the day we're called home to glory. It is literally what I am relying on right now as I'm speaking to you. That I've been given grace to be empowered for this moment. It's our present reality, which is what Jim was talking about last week. It's what sustains us. It's what empowers us. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Did you catch it? Did you see how grace is operating in this verse? Grace is this daily invasion of power into Paul's life that is enabling him to do what he needs to do to carry out the work of the ministry. And so grace isn't just the forgiveness of your sins past, present, and future. Thank God that it is. But it's not just that. It is a daily strengthening 
where God just gives you power so he can, you can carry out what he has called you specifically with your gifts, talents, and passions to do. You've heard it said, we sang it. God's mercies are new every morning. Do you believe that? Like, do you believe that? Do you believe that all the good things that God has promised to be for you in Jesus are there? This is where the power for peacemaking comes from. Peacemaking doesn't come from in and of ourselves. It's not innate. It can only come through a heart transformed by the work of the Spirit. His grace is what empowers us and enables us to make peace with people we don't like. His grace is what enables us to make peace with people we don't get along with. But you need to believe that that's true. And more than that, you need to find complete and utter satisfaction in God and in his promises. You need to believe him when he says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And you need to believe him when he says that he is working all things together for good. Because he is the one who will enable you to persevere through all of the bad Think of the story of Joseph and what he had to go through and what he, like, he was like, you meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good so that his name is glorified. So let's wrap things up. Why would we want to be peacemakers? I'm going to take a three-pronged approach at this. Number one, on an individual level, we pursue peacemaking. We want to be peacemakers because it brings about maturation. We develop, we grow in the Lord. At the beginning of this talk, I'd noted how peacemakers don't avoid conflict, right? Consider Jesus, who is called the Prince of Peace. Did he avoid conflict? No. He didn't avoid conflict. Instead, he used conflict, he used misunderstanding, and he used disagreement as an opportunity to point to the heart, to a bigger issue that was going on. And so instead of running from conflict, I would argue that peacemakers... Look at conflict as opportunities to grow and to mature and to be witnesses. Now, moving a little bit bigger now to a communal church level, Ephesians 4, we speak the truth in love over one another. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? If you're reading that passage in Ephesians 4, down the the road he says the truth is Jesus. So we speak truth, namely Jesus, over each other. When we're struggling to live at peace with one another, we say, hey, brother, remember what Jesus did for you. We speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love isn't like, hey, uh, Steve, your voice is weird, and I just wanted to tell you because that's speaking the truth in love. No, speaking the truth in love is like speaking the gospel, speaking gospel truths over people. And then that brings about maturity. Additionally, in John 13... Jesus issues this like fairly provocative statement and he gives his disciples a new command and he says, I give you a new command that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, people will know that you're my disciples. By this, people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Disciples, followers of Jesus, have to be committed to love. Love for God, love for each other, and love for the world. We cannot be marked by hatred. Instead, like Jesus, we lay ourselves down daily for the sake of others. And that's how we prove to the world that we are disciples. And then lastly, we, we want to be peacemakers because we do this for the sake of the world and for the glory of God. It's missional. 
1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deed and glorify God on the day of visitation. We strive, we fight to live at peace, if possible, with everyone. And we keep our conduct honorable because it points to the gloriousness of our God. It points to the transforming work of our God. People will see our conduct. People will see a different kind of faith, and they'll ask, why? Why? After how I've treated you, why? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. We are so thankful that you are a God who desires to be in relationship with us. We didn't deserve it, and yet you initiated it. You came while we were yet sinners and died for us, and you restored that relationship. Lord, we are so thankful for that. Help us to be a people who follow suit. Help us to be people who are considered, like can be called your children, and they see it by our fruit. They see how we engage with others. They see how we love others. We treat others with respect. Man, I pray that that would be just like the way that your church is exemplified to the world. So help us, Lord. Help us to just continue to pursue you and to pursue others. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.